It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode contains descriptions of police brutality and murder. And if you haven't done so already, please go back and listen to last week's episode, which featured the first part of our look at the 2017 murders at Nadia Fish and Chicken in the South Shore neighborhood of Chicago. As a refresher, on the night before the killings at the restaurant, a man named Jerry Jacobs was gunned down in the South Shore. The next afternoon, a gunman killed four young men at the Nadia restaurant. Hours later, someone murdered a couple in their car in an area not far from the earlier murder sites. The police quickly arrested Jerry Jacobs' 19-year-old son, Maurice Harris, claiming that Harris had killed the four men at the restaurant in retaliation for the death of his father. Law enforcement held a press conference highlighting Maurice's juvenile arrest record, 
stating that Maurice was not a stranger to the Chicago PD. But they did not reveal quite everything about Harris's relationship with the Chicago Police Department. Five years earlier, when Maurice was just 14 years old, he had been publicly brutalized by the Chicago police. And, at the time of his arrest for the murders, he was in the midst of a civil court action against the department. My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And this is The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast. Anya and I connected over the Burger Chef murders, a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees. Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, The Murder Sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout Season 1 to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes. We don't just rely on skimming the headlines. We dive into these cases to bring you in-depth coverage. We're The Murder Sheet, and this is In the Shadow of Nadia, The Corner Store. Chicago attorney Ian Barney would eventually represent Maurice Harris in the Nadia murders. But it was another case that first brought him into Maurice's orbit. Um, So the first time I got involved with Maurice Harris, um, I was contacted by his mother because um, Maurice had been the victim of police misconduct. The incident was ultimately investigated by the Independent Police Review Authority or IPRA. It happened back in 2012, when Maurice was just 14 years old. To the eyes of some, he appeared even younger. He stood at five foot one and weighed just a hair over 100 pounds. He was just a kid. We also want to note that the Chicago Police Department declined to provide a statement on what we're about to tell you. They got back to us to say that they couldn't spare any staffers to talk to us for this podcast. So here's what happened. One day, 14-year-old Maurice was walking to a South Shore neighborhood grocery store. That's when officers Leon Payne and Broderick Snelling of the Chicago Police Department approached. Snelling, in particular, had a checkered record. According to court documents, he had once worked as a security officer with the Chicago Board of Education. But he had been fired due to, quote, sexual harassment and or the failure to cooperate with and truthfully answer inquiries of the board's Title IX officer, repeated or flagrant acts of Group 2 misconduct, conduct which is cruel, immoral, negligent, criminal, 
or causes psychological or physical harm or injury to a student. While Snelling worked as a police officer, he, according to the same court documents, faced complaints for misconduct, including complaints for use, possession, or sale of narcotics, conduct unbecoming a police officer, illegal searches, and multiple complaints for excessive use of force. At the time Snelling and Payne crossed paths with Maurice, they were part of an essentially unsupervised five-person police squad called the Bike Team. This team did not attend roll call, did not always wear uniforms, and did not consistently tell their superior officers where they were or what they were doing. Oh, and they also sometimes took assignments from local politicians. Officer Michael Rule, another member of the bike team, readily admitted to investigators that the team would routinely conduct illegal searches, saying they would shag the guys and mess with people. We usually go in there, and what we do is we just search whoever's right there. Then when we're done, we kick them out, or if we're going to lock them up, we lock them up. Then we might get something to drink. Then we go out. Maurice, as we mentioned, was simply walking to the store when he had the misfortune to encounter two members of this team, Snelling and Payne. The officers ordered him into a corner store. Snelling shoved the teen into a wall and demanded that Maurice tell him where he could find drugs. When Maurice insisted he did not have any drugs, Snelling hit him in the face. And then things got even worse. In a public area of the store, the officers forced the 14-year-old to submit to a strip search. During this search, Maurice was forced to even remove his underwear, leaving him completely nude in the store. These two grown men, tasked with serving and protecting the citizens of Chicago, grabbed a child off the street, beat him up, and made him strip. They are predators. Finally, the officers completed their search and allowed Maurice to dress himself. But the teen's ordeal was far from over. He was taken into a more private area of the store and was hit in the face repeatedly by the officers. He was then uh, hit over the head with a metal crutch um, that you, you know, the crutch that you'd see someone leaving the hospital with. And uh, it was all caught on video. Unbeknownst to the police officers, there was a security camera uh, that had caught all of that, uh, the entire incident on video, multiple security cameras, actually. So a complaint was lodged, I think, by Maurice's mother. And over the years, nothing really happened uh, on the case, but they, they being IPRA, were apparently still investigating it in 2016. Um, and they were mentioning something about a video to Maurice's mom, and she was unsure what to do, so she contacted me. And that's how I first got involved in Maurice Harris's life. The officers, for their part, realized they had been caught assaulting a teen on the store's camera. They later attempted to seize the video, to no avail. In the subsequent investigation, Snelling readily admitted some of the actions Maurice had accused him of, I popped him with the crutch, he said. That's not all. He also went so far as to concede that Maurice had done nothing to provoke the beating. 
I've been in situations, said Snelling, where I've had to use force to effect an arrest when a person was resistant and things of that nature. So I'm not going to sit up and say that I haven't been in physical confrontations. But this was not a physical confrontation because the little guy wasn't, wasn't resistant doing anything. But despite all Snelling's admissions, and despite the existence of the video which documented the incident, Officers Snelling and Payne did not receive much of a punishment for what they did to Maurice. I'll be honest with you. The actual police misconduct, I know that one of the officers received some type of disciplinary action. The other one um, was, I think it was a, a very short suspension. The other one, I, he had a history, um, and I think he was, it was recommended that he be terminated, I believe. And this is, this is the, to the best of my memory. But in order for, some, for a police officer to be terminated, they've got to go in front of the police board. And his case is set to go in front of the police board forever, from what I recall. And before it ever made it there, I think he retired, something along those lines. So I think he, not sure that he ever really got uh, the punishment that had been recommended for him. It must have been frustrating that the uh, police officer never really received any punishment for that uh, mistreatment of uh, Maurice. Well, one of them did receive some punishment, but just generally speaking, yeah, it's extremely frustrating. The the, uh, accountability system for police officers in Chicago is woefully inadequate. Um, um, There's been some reform since then, but at the time it was uh, woefully inadequate inadequate is probably an understatement. And that would not, if you went back and looked at the records, I'm sure that would not be the first time that a police officer retired before getting uh, a punishment like termination. So it's hard for people to hold police officers accountable through the accountability system in the city of Chicago. And I think if you asked any person who handles uh, civil rights cases, they would echo that sentiment. And just so, and I think you guys know this, but uh, somewhere along the lines in that part of Maurice's life, when this HIPAA investigation was ongoing, we did file a civil rights lawsuit against those police officers in federal court and, and did pursue that. While that was pending, and in the early stages actually of pending, I think we hadn't even really gotten into discovery, he was charged with this quadruple homicide that happened in March of 2017, I believe it was. And so what ended up happening is um, we got we got a sovereign offer that we would have otherwise rejected um, because we had, I mean, the case was, in, ter- in terms of um, evidence, it doesn't get much better. It was two police officers on video beating up a very young, a 14-year-old boy, but someone who was a very slight build. I mean, he was a young 14, uh, and it's two grown men kind of beating him up on video for literally no reason. So from an evidentiary standpoint, there was no point to settle the case for what they had offered it. It wasn't uh, a particularly good offer in my estimation. But once he was charged with this uh, quadruple homicide, the calculation changed. He needed, frankly, he needed money to defend himself in the um, in the homicide case, and so we ended up taking the settlement, which was not fair compensation for what had happened to him, but 
uh, unfortunately, was, you know, you got to face reality sometimes. The fact that Maurice was suing the police at the very same time he was arrested for a crime he did not commit raises an uncomfortable yet inescapable question. The fact that Maurice was, um, you know, had had a kind of a slam dunk case against um, these police officers for brutality. And then the fact that he's the one accused of this crime, um, you know, it, it, that, that sounds a bit, you know, I think that will sound a bit fishy to some people. Can, can you speak to that at all? Uh, I think it, it would be natural to say, gosh, these things got to be related. I think that's a natural tendency for people in general. Uh, it's hard to, what you want, you want to make sure things are understandable. And it's hard to understand how two random events like that could happen to one person. So I, I you know, I'd be lying if at the very beginning, I didn't think, gosh, is there, is there some connection here? Is there some reason why the spotlight immediately turned to him? Um, but I can tell you that just from living with both of those cases, there's, there's just simply, as far as I could tell, no connection between the two. You know, I don't know if, you know, that would be conspiratorial thinking or not, but I, I never saw a connection uh, between the two cases, no common participants, nothing like that. I think it's just, you know, it, I don't know if you call it bad luck or what you would call it, but um, there's two separate events that happen to happen to the same person. Let's take a quick break from the murder sheet to tell you about a podcast investigating yet another unforgettable crime. The Orange Tree is a seven-part series about a 2005 homicide that happened near the University of Texas at Austin. The murder of 21-year-old Jennifer Cave, who was shot, dismembered, and left in a bathtub at her friend Colton Petoniak's apartment, continues to haunt the area to this day. Like the Burger Chef murders, this case features plenty of twists and turns, including Colton's flight to Mexico with another UT student, Laura Hall. Both were later convicted in connection with the crime, although Colton has continued to appeal his verdict and claim innocence. The business student turned convicted murderer now says that he doesn't even remember much about the night Jennifer died. The Orange Tree is reported on and produced by Haley Butler and Tanu Thomas, who were both seniors at the University of Texas when they started this project. Together, Haley and Tanu strive to piece together this tragic story in an in-depth podcast that features audio from courtroom scenes and interrogation rooms, prison phone calls, and exclusive interviews with both the perpetrators and the victim's family. You can binge all seven episodes of The Orange Tree today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin. 
or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Row Body Program. Here's how it works. Row gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Row Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's R-O dot C-O slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now, back to the murder sheet. One of the, kind of the way the case unfolded was we, um, I got a call basically saying that Maurice had been um, arrested. And what what was kind of interesting to me was that he had been arrested after he personally set up a meeting with the police. They had contacted him and they had used this ruse that they wanted to uh, interview him about his father's murder, which he was, you know, very willing to, to talk with them about. He, he, he didn't have anything to hide. He, he had no reason to believe that he was going to be arrested for anything. So he actually set up this meeting with, with the police and he went to the meeting and was arrested. And this was on body camera video. So we kind of got to see how it unfolded the arrest itself. Um, and then he's brought to the station and he's put in a room and they, in Illinois, they're required to um, video record any interviews with um, suspects in, in murder cases. So the interview is is recorded and I got a call from somebody saying, hey, Maurice was, was arrested. Um, can you, you know, can you find out what's going on? So anyway, I kind of rushed down to the police station um, because I had, I was aware that the police um, had kind of not necessarily they'd been looking for them, but for him, but that they may have wanted to talk about his father's murder from kind of rumors in the neighborhood. Uh, that's what we thought it was, you know, their interest in him was about. I later learned after talking to a detective that uh, he was a suspect in another shooting. He wasn't specific, but I went down to the station and I was able to meet with Maurice and talk with him privately and um, kind of end the so-called interrogation. Um, and that's kind of how, how the case started. 
Is that a common tactic for, you said the police contacted Maurice and said they wanted to talk to him about his father's murder and it was just a trick to get him in there? Is that something the police uh, do commonly? You know, I, I mean, that particular tactic, I, I don't know if that's common, but it's not uncommon for um, law enforcement, whether it be, you know, Chicago Police Department or some other police department in another municipality or even, you know, FBI agents, it's not uncommon for them to um, lie to or mislead suspects when, when questioning them or trying to question them. And they're totally permitted to do that. There's nothing um, that says that they can't do that. So that, that happens pretty routinely. And, you know, you can see that on, t- on TV shows and they go in and say, oh, you got your DNA all over the knife. And, you know, they don't. Um, but they can do that. Uh, how did he come to be considered a suspect in the uh, quadruple homicide? So what initially happened was, um, from my understanding, the police received some type of anonymous tip, basically, where somebody said this quadruple homicide was retaliation for the murder of not in these words, but these, you know, they're used nicknames and stuff, but uh, was retaliation for the murder of uh, Maurice Harris's father. Maurice Harris's father had been killed the day before. They got that tip and, and they, I think they kind of ran with it in terms of um, their belief that that was the motive for what may otherwise have seemed like a very senseless, uh, violent crime. I think that put Maurice on the radar as suspect number one. So within a, I want to say two to three days, maybe one to two days of the murder, the police showed photographs of Maurice to different individuals who um, were present at the scene of the murder. And three of those individuals identified Maurice as the person who committed the crime. That uh, on the surface, that seems pretty uh, compelling. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is compelling evidence. There's no question. But the context, I think, is you had, I believe, a rumor running around the neighborhood, which is where this uh, quote-unquote anonymous tip came from, uh, a rumor running around the neighborhood that Maurice Harris had committed this crime um, to avenge his father's death. Uh, so that was the word on the street. And I think that, in my view, would have affected um, witnesses' uh, identifications, particularly witnesses who had an interest in um, holding somebody accountable for this. And two uh, of those, or at least two of the people who identified Maury, certainly, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not here to cast blame on anybody. This is a horrible crime. And um, I feel horribly for family and friends of, of these victims and what they had to go through. Uh, but two of the witnesses who identified Maurice <clears throat> were connected to the victims in the case. One was essentially best friends, friends enough that he considered himself like family uh, with two of the victims and was with them at the time that the that they were shot and killed. And when I say with them, I mean literally standing next to them. 
And uh, one of the other witnesses was a family member of two of the victims and was also present um, when they were killed. So uh, I think that between the police probably believing that Maurice did it and probably talking to people about Maurice Harris and his connection to the crime and the rumor mill on the street, um, you know, I think that that maybe affected people's, in my view, I, I would say it affected people's identifications. Other than the identifications and the rumors, did the police come up with any uh, evidence that suggested he was guilty? To my recollection, that was it. It was the identifications, which in an ordinary case can be compelling evidence. But there were some holes in the statements of these witnesses, I felt, that would lead one to believe that they may not be the most reliable um, identifications. I think that was kind of borne out over time. And ultimately, one of these witnesses <clears throat> um, recanted her identification and said she really couldn't be sure. Another one didn't sign a statement recanting it, but spoke with an investigator and more or less, you know, said uh, she wasn't. And in so many words, my interpretation was that she may not have been as sure as she let on to be. And um, one witness was caught on, um, I shouldn't say caught, but was recorded on a, on a telephone call um, saying things that would lead you to believe that maybe the identification uh, was not true or accurate. And another one of the uh, individuals who provided an identification later kind of through an intermediary said some things to the defense that would lead you to believe that perhaps uh, that person's identification wasn't reliable either. The issues with the witnesses were one of many reasons why Barney never doubted his client. I had always believed that Maurice was innocent. Um, he always maintained his innocence from day one. And it was genuine, and I believed it. So my strategy was simply to figure out a way to prove that, basically. You know, it started, it kind of starts out by how can you poke holes in the prosecution's case, and that requires reviewing all the evidence that the prosecution has. So that's kind of how it started. You know, what are, what are they saying they have? Okay, well, we have these three identifications. What's, you know, how reliable are they? Well, when you got into that, we felt like there were some real issues. You had um, two people who identified Maurice, but um, their statements uh, were irreconcilable. In so far as one witness, if you know, <clears throat> the only way both people could have identified um, Warriors would have been if they were um, both present inside this restaurant when the shooting happened. But according to each witness, the other person wasn't there, so it didn't. They didn't make sense. Um, so that's kind of how the defense started. How, you know, let's let's identify some. Um, holes in the evidence, um, some you know things that would suggest that the evidence isn't isn't maybe as reliable as the state thinks it is, and then on top of that, 
uh, getting into our own investigation, trying to track down other witnesses who were there who would have uh, seen the shooting, seen the shooter, and if they couldn't identify the shooter, could at least potentially eliminate Maurice as uh, as a possible perpetrator. And then there were other things that were happening as well, including um, we had asked that DNA testing be done. We had asked that certain cell record, um, cell site location data be examined and stuff like that. So there were a lot of moving parts uh, to the defense investigation. You know, there were a lot of moving parts on the state side as well. They were doing things for you know their own case as well. So that's kind of, you know, all those parts were happening simultaneously, but the first step would have been kind of reviewing the evidence and seeing, you know, what was reliable, what wasn't reliable, what we thought we could uh, attack in terms of reliability, and then building our own case by finding witnesses who could uh, exonerate Maurice. Once we got into the case, we started getting these police reports that showed how the police's investigation unfolded. And to me, one thing that was surprising was how quickly it appeared to have unfolded. And um, that was something I took note of because I I didn't think, you know, in Chicago, for one, the clearance rate for murders is is relatively low. And uh, also, you tend to see um, in most cases that that they don't solve the case right away. It, it takes a little bit of time to to work it up, to interview witnesses, to run down leads, cell phone records, whatever whatever it is that they're going to do. But in this case, it was a matter of days. I think um, less. I, I believe it was less than a week. It was a matter of days between when the uh, quadruple homicide happened and when Maurice was arrested. And in this. Uh, very short period of time, you kind of saw how the investigation unfolded, and the investigation really centered around uh, three primary witnesses who were supposedly um, eyewitnesses who observed the shooter and had identified Maurice. That was according to the police reports. Even though Barney identified some problems with the witness statements, most people, including potential jurors, would find it difficult to disregard observations made by people who actually saw the murders happen. What could he do to overcome the words of the eyewitnesses and prove the innocence of his client? We will find out next week. This week, we relied heavily on court documents that were filed in Maurice Harris's case against the Chicago Police Department, as well as our interview with Harris's attorney, Ian Barney. We thank him for his time. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. As always, thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenlee, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on The Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Murder Sheet, and on Facebook at MSheet Podcast, or by searching Murder Sheet. If you enjoy listening to The Murder Sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure. And send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. 
Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.